Okay. So this evening, uh, in continuation of the theme of awakened qualities of mind, awakened qualities of heart, I want to ex- talk about the teaching on investigation. It's part of the seven factors. One of the seven factors of the Buddha said it was the most important factor of awakening. It's quality of investigation, Dharma Vichaya. So I'll say a little about what that is and how we can work with it here. First I'll give a teaching from another Dharma teacher, Gary Larson. So there's a picture of cows in a field happily eating cows. And one of them, who apparently has been practicing Dharma Vichaya, suddenly looks up startled. Hey, wait a minute. This is grass. We've been eating grass. Spring, grass, So we live in a time in a world where a certain kind of investigation is uh, abounding, you know, whether it's astronomy, astrophysics, the field of genetics, molecular biology, incredible profound explorations of wisdom of knowledge about this world, about this universe. A tremendous, uh, exciting time in some way. The fact that they've mapped every gene in the human body and that so much of our genes are 95, 99%, the same gene pool that we share with monkeys and apes, which we are animals, of course, we forget or just the knowledge of what's in the universe. This, this galaxy, our little galaxy that we're in, the Milky Way, makes it sound like a little candy bar. It has a hundred billion stars in it. And there's a hundred billion or maybe 900 billion galaxies just like this one, each having a hundred billion stars or more, with probably hundreds of billions of planets, trillions. There's a lot of zeros if you add all those galaxies up and planets. What we're doing here is a different kind of exploration. It's an inner exploration. And perhaps as as is happening the field field of science and molecular biology, these inner and outer worlds are not so far apart as once thought. This is from Carl Sagan great scientist. I think this search does not lead to a complacent satisfaction or arrogant sense that we know the answer. It goes with a courageous interest to greet the universe as it really is, not to foist our our emotional predispositions on it, but to courageously accept what our explorations tell us. So we can apply that to the outer universe in the inner universe, not to foist our emotional predispositions and assumptions and expectations, which we all carry and we project and map onto our experience in the world, but to actually see with fresh eyes what's actually true. So, of course, the Buddha was one of the great inner explorers, mapping out human consciousness, 
mapping out this psychology of mind and heart, how to understand this human predicament, how to understand our existential situation, how to understand the causes of suffering and distress, and to find ways to be free of that. And so we're living here as a testament to the quality of his investigative mind, that clarity that he brought to his experience. As, as he talked about before he attained awakening, he said, why, if I am subject to old age, birth, sickness, and death, do I seek those same things? What if I do was seek the deathless, the nameless, formless, nibbana? And so began his exploration, away from the things of the world. And this exploration has continued throughout the centuries. Every Buddhist tradition, every country that Buddhism has gone to, there's been a continuing elaboration, exploration. How do these teachings meet and fit the cultures uh, and situations in different times and different eras. And so here we are in a very different era than the Buddhas, but the same questions are being asked. What is this? What is this life? What is the nature of suffering? What binds us? How do we liberate ourselves from it? So I was recently at a conference, maybe some of you were there, Wisdom 2.0, conference down, uh, organized um, at Google, with Google and Facebook and Twitter and a bunch of other Silicon Valley uh, companies and people working there, uh, meeting with mindfulness teachers, John Kabat-Zinn, Jack was there, Sharon Salzberg and others. And it was a really fascinating uh, interface between these two seemingly very different worlds. The inner world and these companies, you know, maybe two or three of these companies reach two billion people in the planet. And to, and to see, there was, basically there was this genuine exploration, investigation, how do we live a mindful life? How do we integrate the world of technology and presence, wakefulness? How do we bring depth to that, to, to the work and to the product? When um, the Center for Contemplative, Contemplative Mind first approached Google to uh, teach some mindfulness classes, uh, Danny Goldman and others went to teach there and very few people showed up. And there was kind of a surprise. Uh, so they went back to the drawing board and said, no, we need to reframe how we're... They, no, they, they, they framed it as a mindfulness-based stress reduction class. And stress is kind of an uncool thing in certain cultures. So it didn't go down very well. Not many people came, so they went back to the drawing board. Okay, how can we represent this? What is Google known for? It's known for, for its search engines. So they renamed the course Search Inside Yourself. Search Inside Yourself which is really what we're doing is searching inside ourselves. And then hundreds of people showed up. It became a very popular course, and it's really permeated the organization. And mindfulness is something that's talked about. You know, they have mindful pauses before they start meetings.
So what is investigation in this context of retreat? Upandita put it this way via Lila Wheeler. <laughs> investigation is the ability to know through discernment by a non-intellectual discernment the true nature of Dharma, the way things are. Ability to know the true the true discernment of things, I think this is a misprint actually. So, sorry, maybe, maybe you can correct, maybe you know the quote. <laughs> this is from the book that, that Leela co-wrote. So it's an ability to discern what's true in the moment, to discern the nature of things. An experiential understanding. To be able to discriminate between what's skillful and what's unskillful, what's wholesome, what's unwholesome. It's a capacity to see and to know what's true, what is. To penetrate beneath our usual assumptions and projections and ideas and biases. As the Buddha said, that which we conceive is ever other than is so. That that which we conceive to be that which we conceptualize is ever other than is so. One of the ways I want to talk about investigation tonight is our association of investigation is often mental. A thinking about. And when we think about the word investigation, what does it conjure up? Thinking, analyzing, processing. But I want to speak to it also as a movement of the heart. Because the, the, the intention for investigation in this practice arises out of the heart's wish to free us from suffering. That's why we're here. Is anybody here not motivated by suffering? Anybody here not suffering in their lives? Anybody here not want to be free of suffering? Right? So this movement is a really compassionate movement of the heart, a movement of love, to know what's causing suffering. Why is it we don't rest in natural great peace, as one teacher put it. This is from Hamid, the founder of the Diamond Approach School, talking about investigation, inquiry. He says, the motivation we need is the sincerity of wanting the truth for its own sake, loving the truth for its own sake, This happens when truth becomes what we want, what we value, what we appreciate, what makes our heart happy. This is not a matter of ethical sincerity, of telling the truth, which is how sincerity is usually understood. The attitude here is more of a state of the heart, a devotional attitude. So to know the truth is, as he says, it's a devotion. It's a devotional attitude. We want to know what's real, what's here. Not our illusions, our delusions, our projections, our assumptions. So as you go about your days here with this, this curiosity, this investigation, see if you can sense the heartful quality in it. And everybody here will be 
exploring and investigating different things at different times. Many of you have been practicing for decades. Some of you are relatively new to practice. So at different times, different things will call your curiosity, call your attention. I remember for the first many years in my practice, maybe the first 10, 15 years in my practice, I was really curious mostly about liberation, about freedom, emptiness, what frees the mind and the heart. Partly motivated by wanting to escape samsara, (laughs) to get off the wheel. Somehow I could just transcend to some beautiful transcendent realm and it would all be over, some nirvana retirement home. And then the last, I'd say last 10, 12 years has been a different exploration. It's really been an exploration of the heart. How does this quality of awakening, of freedom, how does it move through my body and heart in the world in relationship? What is love? How does love relate to freedom? What is the movement of compassion? How do I live in this body in relationship in the midst of conflict and difficulty. So different things will call us at different times. Sometimes we don't get a choice. Something shows up on retreat. Some wave, some storm, some, some physical pain, some, some deep emotional trauma surfaces, some, some wave of ecstasy. And, it's, and that we bring that curious mind. What is this? I remember sitting long retreats at IMS with very intense chronic pain. And that was the last thing I wanted to investigate. Very last thing I wanted to be with. But there it was. So what do we do? We can ignore it, we can try and bypass, we can try and skip to bliss. That's accessible. Doesn't really work. Temporarily alleviates maybe. So what are the supports for this kind of curiosity, investigation? So first is this quality of mindfulness that we're developing and deepening, establishing moment by moment. This coming into direct relationship, direct perception of what's here. Again from Upandita, Investigation must be aware in a penetrative manner of what arises. Then the mind can gain insight into the true nature of phenomena. So again, I want to come back to this idea of love, love in the form of Dharma Chanda, and love and zeal for the truth. Zeal to want to know. As Krishnamurti says, it's the truth that sets you free. We want to come into direct realization of that. There's a practice, I haven't studied this practice, but I sort of feel like I've been um, moved by it for many years. And um, it's learning about uh, a Korean Zen koan practice that Stephen and Martin Batchelor did for many years, where the central question or koan was the question, what is this? What is this? 
which really for me feels like the heart of this practice. What is this? You sit down, there's a breath. What is this? What is breath? Is there such a thing as the breath? No such thing as the breath. There's movement of air, of muscle, of sensation. Where is the breath? A thought comes, what is this? A thought pops up of your mother, a flower, lunch. What is this? What is thought? What is the nature of thought? So ephemeral, so wispy, so powerful. And then we close our eyes and the sense of the body dissolves and there's just space and tingling light. What is this? I thought my body was solid and heavy and concrete and bones and flesh and flabby and achy and old. What is this? It's light. It's tingling. It's vibration. I was once on a three-month course back in uh, Barry in Insight Meditation Society and someone asked, uh, I think the teacher was Stephen, Steve Armstrong, uh, an, an often asked question, where's the passion? Where's the juice? We all look like a bunch of zombies moving around, snail pace, looking down, miserable. Like, where's, where's the fun? Where's the juice? Where's the passion? Everyone looks so drained. And he gave this very beautiful answer that the passion is in the passion is in the knowing, in the desire to be, in the desire to be present, to know what's true. The passion's in meeting the moment, waking up, being present for this. It may not fit your idea of passion, but there's a certain passion in this practice. There's a certain rigor and a zeal and beauty in it. So another really important support for investigation is the quality of not knowing. If we think we know our experience, then how can we investigate it because we've already closed our mind? And so partly this practice reveals how closed our mind is. We see all the different ways that we think we know. Oh, there's so-and-so walking down the hill to lunch. They're always walking down first. I know what they're like. You know, we see somebody, we make an immediate projection, assumption. Oh, I know that person. Look at the color of their socks. And we make a whole story. You know, the way someone sits, the way someone walks, the way someone asks questions, the assumptions we make about ourselves. And so we close the inquisitiveness. We close the curiosity. If we think we know what oak trees are, or bay trees are, and we walk down the hill, that's just a bunch of oaks and bays walking down the hill over there, or green, or mossy, or... Yeah? But can you ever actually know what an oak tree is? Like that big, beautiful oak tree that's up on the, one of the paths back here? It rests its limbs on the, on the earth because it's so heavy and big and old. Can you ever know that tree? Ever? You could stand next to it for 50 years and not know that tree. You can get some intimation some sense, but it changes, always changing, just like ourselves. Again from Hamid, the core of any question is a dynamic unknowing, an unknowingness that is moving towards knowing. This is from Adi Lang. There is something I don't know that I am supposed to know I don't know what it is I don't know, yet I'm supposed to know, 
and I feel I look stupid if I seem to both not know it and not know what it is I don't know. <laughs> Sound familiar? Therefore I pretend to know it. This is nerve-wracking, since I don't know what I must pretend to know. Therefore I pretend to know everything. I feel you know what I'm supposed to know, but you can't tell me what it is, because you don't know that I don't know what it is. You may know what I don't know, but not that I don't know it. And I can't tell you, so you will have to tell me everything. So, so it's good to laugh at uh, the way that we move around this life, including pretending to know. So another way we talk about this is beginner's mind. And especially important on a longer retreat. How many breaths have you paid attention to on this retreat? <laughs> if you've been here for five weeks, even if you've been here for a week, it's a lot of breaths, it's a lot of sensations, it's a lot of sounds, a lot of bells, a lot of footsteps. And it's very easy for the mind to go, oh, yada, 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 another breath, I can't <laughs> bear to be with another breath. How much, how much is there to know in another footstep? Have I not seen, felt enough already? And yet, and yet, every moment, every breath, every step, there's something potential to be revealed. We don't know. We, ne- we really don't know. And so the invitation is to stay curious. And what about this breath, this step, this sound? this chronic knee pain that I think I know and have hated enough, but still it's here. This is from Henry Miller, the novelist who took up painting. He writes, I remember well the transformation which took place in me when I first began to view the world with the eyes of a painter. The most familiar things and objects which I had gazed at all my life now became an unending source of wonder, and with wonder, of course, affection. A teapot, an old hammer, a chipped cup, whatever came to hand, I looked upon it as if I had never seen it before. To paint is to love again, to live again, and to see again. And it's the same with meditation. To meditate, to practice, to be open with presence, is to love again, to live again. When we're really fully present to something, as I'm sure you've felt at times here and elsewhere, it touches the heart. We might be looking, as you said, in an old chipped teacup. It might be a fork, and the way the light's hitting the fork on the dining table. It might be the, the angle of a tree. It might be the shoes all lined up neatly in the, in the cloakroom. And when there's that quality of open presence, curiosity, there's, we're touched. The world becomes alive. So, keeping this mind of curiosity, beginner's mind, not knowing. And then there's the, the questions themselves, the inquiries. 
What is it to be human? What is this awareness? What does it mean to be awake? What is the nature of consciousness? What's important about those kind of questions that can turn our attention to a deeper investigation is not necessarily to look for an answer, but to see how those questions lean us into a deeper probing, a deeper looking. So as Joseph often says about sound, so we hear a sound, sound being known, sound arising and being known effortlessly in awareness. And he'll ask the question, known by what? What is knowing? What is that spontaneous arising of knowing? What is that? What is knowing in this moment? It's a complete mystery that I hit this big round thing that made a sound and it was registering in consciousness, in a hundred consciousnesses or one consciousness. Is there one or many consciousness? This is from Rilke. Have patience with everything unresolved in your heart and to try to love the questions themselves as if they were locked rooms or books written in a very foreign language. Don't search for the answers which could not be given to you now because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps then someday far in the future, you will gradually, without even noticing it, live your way into the answer. Try to love the questions themselves as if they were locked rooms or books written in a very foreign language. Love the questions themselves. What is this? What is this? Another support for investigation is patience. Generally, you know, our minds are pretty impatient, have you noticed? You know, we're used to being able to Google things and get an answer in about three nanoseconds if we have a decent internet connection. And if it's slightly slow and it comes through at five nanoseconds, we get impatient, we get frustrated, right? I was having that experience today. I was, my, the server was really slow. There was impatience arising. (laughs) And um, so when we come to our own experience and some of these deeper Dharma themes, we need a lot of patience to explore some of these questions I've been mentioning. to, to, To explore the nature of self anatta or shunyata emptiness or nibbana what are these things if they're things at all and these can be these are explorations that we may explore for 40 years and still not necessarily know in a way that's complete and for some that might be a complete drag Oh no, I just want to get, just give me the answer, please. Where's the secret teaching? <laughs> you know? And for some, it's like, oh, it's just, it's just, we're exploring this multifaceted 
diamond or dimension that keeps revealing itself in different ways. And that's beautiful and exciting. It's like going into a, one of those underground caves, you know, with all the stalactites and stalagmites. And this is beautiful exploration. And the wonder, the deepening wonder and awe. And I think I've understood it. And then something else gets revealed. It also takes courage. It takes courage to turn towards experience, ourselves, the world, and to ask that question, what is true? Especially if we're turning towards a difficult experience. When we're feeling, feeling some kind of deficient emptiness, some kind of hole, some burning sense of abandonment, some deep existential fear, or really difficult loneliness. It's hard to stay in that experience and ask, what's true? What is this? That's why it's so important that this, all of this practice is flavored with kindness and compassion. So I was teaching an MBSR class many years ago, and it was at Kaiser, and it was for chronic pain patients. And this woman came in, this was uh, about week four, week five in the class, which is usually when people have a little turning, a little opening. And um, she came in and she said, I had this really interesting experience. I was paying attention to the pain in my neck, which I've had for about 10 years. Um, pain medication hasn't helped. And I've, my whole body's been racked in contraction around it. But I was in meditation, it came up really strongly. I stayed with it, I felt it, I went into it. I was able to soften a little of the, the fear around it. And I was able to probe right into the center of the experience, right into the, like the very core of the, of the pain. And she said, and it was bearable. It was not as bad as I thought. I had fears, I had years of building up this fear and tightening and tension. And when I dropped into the center of it, there was this tingling, burning, moving, coming and going, but I had the capacity to be with it, to know it. It wasn't so overwhelmingly intense and unbearable. It was a moment of liberation for her. It also requires, like much of practice, like much of practice, a relaxed attention. We can't will ourselves to insight. We can't make insight happen. We set the conditions, we lay the ground, we till the soil, we water it with mindfulness, with presence, with curiosity, with kindness. And then clarity arises when it arises, when the conditions are ripe for that. Some of Einstein's greatest breakthroughs would come when he was sailing, not in his lab or with his blackboard, writing out impossibly long equations. When he was relaxed, he was mulling over something, but his attention body was relaxed, and it allowed a certain clarity to emerge. You may notice that in the walking. Sometimes for many people, the walking practice is a place where insight arises actually more freely, because there's a certain kind of relaxed spaciousness in the attention, where sometimes in the sitting there's more tightness, And to distinguish for a moment investigation from thinking about and pondering, it's not speculating, it's not analyzing in a mental, cognitive way. 
the Buddha gave this simile of uh, the arrow. Someone gets uh, injured with an arrow and uh, instead of asking for the arrow to be removed, he says, no, I don't want the arrow removed until I know who shot the arrow, what kind of wood the arrow is made from, what feathers, what birds are the feathers from, which direction it came, how far did it come from. By that time, the man would die. And he gives the same analogy for ourselves. If we, if we try to answer all these questions, these philosophical questions, that aren't, don't pertain to what will help us be free from suffering, we run out of time. So, investigation here in this context of meditation and retreat. So, mindfulness is what allows us to connect, to know, to be present to what's happening in our experience. And investigation, in a way, is a sort of application and a deepening of that process, of that contact, of allowing us to see beneath appearances. This is another cartoon from Gary Larson. So there's a picture of a suburban house with, a, with a, the owner in the yard with his dog. And um, he's done some clear, you could say, this is noting gone nuts. So he's painted on the house, the house. Painted on the door, the door. Painted on the tree, the tree. Painted on the dog, the poor dog, the dog. <laughs> the cat, the cat. <laughs> And he's painted a shirt, <laughs> pants on his clothes. <laughs> so we're, pro- we're investigation is probing beneath the appear the surface appearance of things. I always forget the name of these books, but there was a, a period when these books came out. These three D books. I'm not even sure they were three D actually. Where they were, they were like this haze of psychedelic imagery. And if you looked at them long enough, there would be a, the, this whole other picture would come out into relief, as if it, like, it was like a 3D image of a prehistoric landscape or a rock concert. You remember, remember those? That's it kind of like it's a, it's a, it's a fa- like a facet of, of investigation, where we, we're looking, we're looking, we're looking, and then something with that patient, open, curious attention, something as if steps out from the page or from life, from experience, and reveals itself more clearly. Again, Upandita. When Dharma Vichaya investigation is present, it lights up the field of awareness, illuminating the objects of observation so the mind can see its characteristics and penetrate its true nature. When Dharma Vichaya is present, it lights up the field of awareness illuminating the objects of observation so the mind can see its characteristics and penetrate its true nature. So again, it arises out of the intimate, direct experience, a moment-to-moment experience. It's not some abstract philosophical contemplation. So, and of course, the, the, the place that we're mostly uh, inhabiting and placing our attention is in the body, in the senses, in the breath, in the sensations of body. Achanman 
talks about investigation this way. He says, in your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to leave the body. Examine its nature, see the elements that comprise it, see the impermanence, the suffering, the selflessness of the body while sitting, walking, standing, or lying down. When its true nature is seen fully and lucidly by the heart, the wonders of the world will become clear. In this way, the purity of the mind can shine forth timeless and delivered. In your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to leave the body. So in a way, that's a really beautiful summary of what we're doing here. One of the main things that we're doing here. In your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to leave the body. See its nature, see its impermanent, selfless, unsatisfactory, unreliable nature, which allows the, the cloudy, the wonders of the heart to be liberated, to be clear. So another way, another doorway into this, or a sort of refraction of the lens of investigation, uh, is we can look at it in two ways. One is sometimes our investigation is like a probe, where we, where we penetrate down one-pointedly into an experience, might be a sensation, whatever's arising in the moment. And so there's a kind of a very directed probing of experience unfolding. And the other aspect to that is, 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 is more of a quality of synthesis, where we're able to synthesize different elements of our experience, which allow a certain arising of intuitive insight. Often intuitive insight is the synthesis of uh, many different moments or perceptions of experience. So I, I'm going to read a story to illustrate this, um, it's a story from the texts. Um, this is written by Joseph Goldstein. Oh, it's actually written by somebody who heard Joseph talking about it. That's how I heard somebody else talking about this story. Joseph Goldstein once told this moving version of a story of the Buddha and a dullard. dullard. Joseph says, one of my favorite stories from the Buddha, Buddha's time tells about a disciple of the Buddha who was very dull. His brother, another disciple, was an arahant, fully enlightened and also very smart. The dullard had been inspired by the teachings and been ordained as a monk. He had the sweetest heart, but his mind was really slow. Because he was slow, his brother gave him, a f- his pr- as his practice, a four-line verse of the Buddha's teaching to memorize. He struggled and struggled to learn one line. Then as he was trying to learn the second line, it pushed out the first. One line was all that his mind could hold. The struggle went on and on. He simply did not have the intelligence to do it. His arahant brother finally gave up and said, This is hopeless. You'd better leave the order of monks. The poor man was totally dejected. He felt so sad because his heart was so devoted to the Dharma. As he walked back to his village, feeling very low, the Buddha, knowing what had happened, came and walked by his side. He stroked the poor man's head and consoled him by giving him a practice exactly suitable to his his condition. 
Here's a meditation subject for you. Take this white handkerchief and stand out in the hot sun and rub it. That was the whole meditation. So the man took the handkerchief, went out in the sun and began to rub it. Slowly the handkerchief started to become dirty with sweat from his hand. As that happened, memories awakened in him of previous lifetimes of practice when he had seen impurities coming from his body. As he continued to watch the soiled handkerchief, a profound dispassion arose and his mind opened. He became fully enlightened. Intelligence and all the traditional psychic powers came to him, in addition to deep understanding of the Dharma. And the story then ends by describing how he um, played a lot of good-humored psychic tricks on his, uh, on his brother. <laughs> So that brotherly stuff doesn't go away even after enlightenment. <laughs> so I love that story. Both speaks to the, the, um, the incredible skillfulness that the Buddha had of giving teachings that were perfectly aligned with someone's capacity and capability. And also speaks to how when we, when we persist, you know, we set those conditions, insight and clarity can arise in doing something as simple as rubbing the handkerchief with your hand. So in terms of our practice here, in, 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 the, in the combination of mindfulness and, and investigation, I think of our, one of the, the central themes of our practice is what is this, what is this moment, what is unfolding in this moment in my body, in my mind, in my heart, and how am I relating to it? What's the attitude, what's the relationship, what's arising in response or reactivity to it? And this very simple investigation really is an exploration of the noble truths. What is this, what is this could be a contraction, could be dullness, could be self-hatred, could be mm, sleepiness, could be any of the hindrances. What is this that's arising? What is my reaction in in relationship to it that's causing suffering? The aversion, the resistance, the blame, the judgment, the shaming, the grasping, the resistance. So we get to look at what, the mind affected by the three poisons, greed, hatred, and delusion, the mind free of greed, hatred, and delusion. Right? And we see this moment to moment. We can look at practice as very simple. Our, 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 our practice, our life is like this. It's open, flowing, fluid. Or it's like this. We're caught, we're tight in some fixation, some grasping, some aversion, some doubting, and then we see and we release. Oh, I can let go. I can breathe. I can open my heart. I can do some matter. And then two seconds later, we get caught. And so our life and our retreat is that movement back and forwards. One of the teachers, teachers of Spirit Rock gives this practice 
Maybe you can do this here since you have a lot of time to practice. So after the meditation ends, and you're going to go to your walking place, if, if from the moment the bell goes, whenever you feel a moment of contraction, grasping aversion, you stop. Notice it, be with it, until it's understood, released, and then you carry on walking. Maybe you take two steps, and you see someone who you're having difficulty with, and you contract, so you stop, you pause, you feel it. And you realize, actually, it's lunchtime. Ooh, and you start lunging forward. Better get to the door quick. Grasping, grasping, stop, pause. Maybe it takes you half an hour to get to the door. <laughs> That's okay, because there's nothing else to do, right? You're just going <laughs> to walk or sit. It's all the same. So, so it's a really great practice to explore. So whenever there's any, any contraction, any of this, you just stop. What is this? What is this contraction? Stopping, feeling, sensing. At some point it passes, there's some understanding. Just carry on doing what you're doing. Same when you're eating or doing anything. Not doing a yoga job because that might slow things down a little bit. So we can bring this quality of investigation to any of the foundations of mindfulness, to the body, to Vedana, the feeling tone, which we'll talk more of in the instructions this week. Just to see that subtle shift, just this contact, feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, and notice how we respond to that. Or to the third foundation, to the mind states, the emotions that arise. That's often the big theme for many people, exploring the realm of the heart, the various things that we carry from our lives, the very often things that, that come through in the space that is created in retreat. We often end up re-experiencing or processing or examining long-held contractions of the heart. Or we explore the dharmas, and specifically exploring the three characteristics, which we'll talk more about, but really which are flavored every aspect of the teaching and practice. When dukkha arises, when suffering arises, when pain arises, can we keep that open curiosity rather than, oh, can I, as someone said today, I just, I just, I just kind of wait it out. You know, I'm in pain and I just kind of like hang in there until it passes and then I can like get on with my life. <laughs> how, how often do we endure, as Rilke says, how often do we endure these lonely nights of sadness waiting for the end? Yeah. As opposed to like, oh, sadness. Now let's take a look. I'm usually terrified of sadness. I'm terrified of being alone. Okay, let's, what is this? Or investigating the changing nature of our experience. You know, we live in these beings, in, these, in this consciousness where that just sees a waterfall of experience, a changing, fluctuating flow of experience. Nothing stays the same in any two moments. So it's sensing into that, especially when we get caught in thinking, oh my God, this is how it's always going to be. My retreat this week has been hard and it's how it's going to be for the next four weeks. And 
well, this is great. I finally, you know, achieved 15th jhana and I'm in complete happiness. There's no 15th jhana, by the way. (laughs) But, you know. Um, And we think, ah, finally I'm here. How often we had that thought, we get into a nice groove in our meditation, oh, now, now I've arrived. Now it's going to be great. Now it's going to continue. Forever. And of course it doesn't, but we get caught. Oh. Or seeing the selfless nature of things. We sit in the midst of this cascade, this cacophony of experience. Sounds, feelings, thoughts, memories, perceptions, judgments arising and passing according to conditions, consciousness arising and passing out of conditions. Do we ask any of it to happen? The breath, the thoughts, the feelings, the sensations, the pain? No, it's just arising selflessly. And then we take ownership. My pain, my sadness, my body, my zafu, my, 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 my. Me, me, me. To pay attention to the selfing quality. How we appropriate and ascribe. We're sort of we're all imperialistic in a certain way. This is all mine. And don't, you know, issuing passports to step over our zafus, you know, this is my space. <laughs> So many, many other things to explore. We can explore causality, how the relationship between things, mind conditions body, body conditions mind, thought conditions feeling, feeling conditions thought, just to see the the conditioned nature of things, to see the the constructed nature of things. This is from Kabir. He says, friends, please tell me what I can do about this world I hold to and keep spinning out. I gave up sewn clothes and wore a robe, but I noticed one day the cloth was well woven, so I bought some burlap, but I still throw it elegantly over my left shoulder. I pulled back my sexual longings, and now I discover I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage, and now I notice I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed, and now I'm proud of myself. When the mind wants to break its link with the world, it still holds on to one thing. We see, we, we, we give up one thing, it takes birth another thing, and another thing, and another thing. And we just see the process, and we just watch the process, the, the, the selfless dance, beautiful, mysterious, painful, the whole catastrophe. So... Um, Useful just to, to make a note of um, the, the obstacles or the resistance to investigation. Sometimes we just don't want to look. I'm not going to look into that. That's not very interesting. Why would I want to explore my existential angst, my knee pain, my sadness? Forget it. I'm going to think about lunch. I had a friend who was going through a lot of relationship difficulty and I asked him, you know, what were they doing about it? Were they in therapy? And, you know, was he getting help? He said, no, I just smile and hope it's going to go away. 
20 years later. <laughs> Still together, amazingly. So to look at... Uh, <laughs> Maybe it works. I don't know. What do I know? <laughs> that is not an area I'm authority on. <laughs> Anyhow. Sometimes we're afraid of looking because we're afraid of opening Pandora's box. Because yeah. we, never, we never know what's going to be revealed. You know, sometimes ignorance is bliss. We prefer to would rather not know, thank you very much, what's in there. So we keep a lid on things. But we could keep a lid on things and then we keep a lid on everything else, including joy and happiness and connection. So lastly, what I want to say is how the process of investigation both leads to clarity and illumination, but it also leads to a quality of deeper unknowingness, that it takes us further into the mystery. And even though we become clearer and things become more illuminated, it also takes us more into the unknown. And we can, we can just like the, just the way science is probing into cells and atoms and subatomic particles and quarks and all these other things, I have no idea what the name is, that they're just beyond small. And, and it's sort of opening up into a sort of an infinity, in fact, vastness. In the same way, our investigation takes us to the frontier of, of unknowing, of not knowing. Where, it's, where we're still, the mystery is revealed, perhaps even in more so, by revelation. And we realize how much we don't know, how little we know. And we stand in awe of this universe, of this vastness. It's from the Zen poet Ikkyo. And what is mind and how is it recognized? If I clearly draw in if I clearly draw in ink the sound of breezes drifting through pine is all that is seen. What is mind and how is it recognized? If I clearly draw it in ink, the sound of breeze drifting through the pines is all that is seen. Yeah, it takes us to this place of who knows? Yeah. What is this? Who knows? I can get close, I can get curious, I can be fascinated. This body that's made up of a hundred trillion cells, in this next sentence that I speak, 50,000 cells will fade away. But don't worry, because in this next sentence, 50,000 cells will be reborn. Maybe not reborn, but born. Who knows, maybe reborn. Who knows? <laughs> Where do they come from? Where do they go? I don't know. So we sense this in the silence. We sense this just right now. What is this? What is here? What is this moment? If we look at anything, it's a complete mystery.
and beautiful in that and complete in that. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.